All right, we are back. We have a lot of ground to cover. I want to thank Sharon for pointing out to us that on next year's um, California Speaker Series, <laughs> the good people over at KFBK have elected to start off with Laura Bush. The brochure describes her as instrumental in many areas of national and global concern. Also notes, she has continued her involvement with America's youth and reading initiatives, which are issues she's very passionate about from her years as being a former teacher and librarian. And yet we have to admit, there's nothing to shape a person's character quite like the years you spend being a former librarian and a former teacher. Of course, not to be outdone, next year, February 16, 2011, they're going to bring John Hoffmeister in. John Hoffmeister? Apparently he's president of Shell Oil, or was from 2005 to 2008, wherein he launched an unprecedented outreach program to discuss critical global energy challenges. Gosh, he must have held conferences, meetings, discussions, maybe even a symposium or two. <laughs> Apparently today he heads the Citizens for Affordable Energy, a public policy advocacy group that promotes sound U.S. energy solutions and includes education on energy issues. Good God. On a happier note, Jane Goodall will be coming next March, March of 2011. Peter Hillary, the son of uh, Sir Edmund Hillary, will be in no here in November. And Tom Brokaw will arrive next January, so it's not all bad. And uh, speaking of energy, we wanted to cite an article from the Green Days section of the Sacramento News and Review, article by Alastair Bland, titled Planes, Trains, or Automobiles, which asked the question, is shipping goods on boats and trucks more eco-friendly than shopping local? We, of course, talked to Michael Pollan about his uh, local food movement, something we very much support, but Alastair Bland... Um, raises some interesting questions, uh, whether you're going to actually save uh, energy costs in buying produce. Well, it depends on, on how it was shipped, not just from how far away. Noted Alastair, to put this in practical terms, a banana shipped 3,000 miles from Costa Rica to San Francisco and driven by truck 100 miles to Sacramento may be equally carbon costly as a California avocado that travels 400 miles to your favorite produce stall in a truck. Noting, of course, that uh, shipping is a very efficient way to move things. Saying it isn't to say that uh, a ship burns less fuel than a truck. In fact, ships incinerate so much tar-like bunker fuel, they measure it in tons, often hundreds or thousands. But those tons of fuel move such huge quantities of cargo that the efficiency rate of a ship far exceeds that of a loaded vehicle. And that settles it. We're going to have to get Alistair Bland on this program. Maybe Jackson Griffith, too, also had a, a accompanying article about, uh, about the taste of suburbia's latest farmer's markets. We're definitely planning to work uh, more in tandem with the news and review in the future. We had a nice chat with uh, Jeff Von Kainel, the editor, a few weeks back, who's interested in talking about how many products out there are masquerading as green when they're not. An article by Tom Knudsen in the Sacramento Bee recently on this very topic noted that... Um, Many products that promise to be good for the planet aren't as environmentally friendly as they claim. It's a process known as greenwashing. In fact, Tom Knudsen was citing a, a survey that was released um, some weeks back examining the blizzard of, of consumer products from cosmetics to copy paper that are allegedly a green. This comes at a time when California Senator Dianne Feinstein is contemplating introducing federal legislation to bring more oversight to this opaque world of green marketing. 
The survey released under the title The Seven Sins of Greenwashing didn't disclose which products it found to be deceptive, but it cited common ways that manufacturer claims and product labels can mislead consumers. We talked about an article in New Scientist magazine about this from October of 08, and this is something we are going to have to take a closer look at. Article by Fred Pierce notes that conservationists are sometimes um, some of the perps in this. To quote from the article, which cited Christine McDonald, evidently someone who studied this, big money spending environmental groups like the WWF, World Wildlife Fund, Conservation International, and the Nature Conservancy are bankrolled by super-rich benefactors, and several of their boards feature executives from donor corporations. To keep the funds rolling in, compromises are inevitable. Anyway, we will return to that topic, also the topic of how we can be more energy independent. Another article by New Scientist worth citing, April 3rd of this year, notes that uh, much has been made of how we could use tidal power. They're even looking at area, an area north of Scotland that's been described as the Saudi Arabia of marine power. But an article by Hans von Heeren notes that in truth, there really isn't much energy to be had. In fact, if you want to use tidal power, it turns out there's only about 20 places in the world where you have sufficient currents to make it worthwhile. One of those is in the north of Scotland. But noted Mr. Van Heeren, unfortunately, these sites are all in extraordinarily rich and ecologically fragile straits and estuaries that are critically important spawning grounds for marine life. These strong tides are what make those waters so productive as their turbulence stirs up nutrients vital for life. Here's something I didn't know. According to Newsweek, the United States has an electrical grid that divide, that's divided into three independent sections, East, West, and since the mid-1930s, Texas. A proposed superstation in New Mexico would sink the three systems and uh, allow us to move energy across the country more efficiently. But naturally, since this project threatens to bring the Longhorn State at least partly under federal jurisdiction, Texas has fought it since it was announced. Apparently, the Texans want it both ways, a chance to connect to the national market, but also to set their own prices in the state. Well, I don't know if anybody's worried about it. Everyone's seen what a fine job Texas oil, Texas energy companies did for us here in California. People like Enron just did a splendid, splendid job <laughs> bankrupting California. Well, they didn't actually bankrupt California. We're bankrupt for other reasons, but it wasn't for lack of trying by the, from the Enrons of the world. But you know, we do have some good news in the alternative energy department. There was a big scandal back in late uh, 2008 when a uh, coal ash uh, impounded area in Tennessee basically broke away and, and it contaminated numerous rivers there with coal ash. Coal, of course, is probably the most environmentally unfriendly method there is of generating power. But every cloud may have a silver lining, and it turns out that some people are talking about how they may be able to use this coal ash to extract uranium and thorium. You may have noted one of the factoids that's trotted out from time to time by proponents of nuclear power that conventional coal-burning power stations release more radioactivity in the environment than do nuclear power stations. And that is true. And the reason is that the ash left over when the coal is burned contains radioactive elements, uranium, thorium, and others. So apparently a firm based in Toronto, Spartan Resources, has signed a deal with the China National Nuclear Corporation to basically extract these radioactive elements from the coal ash. The coal ash apparently hol holds only about 300 parts per million versus the 1,000 or more parts per million of, of ore, 
But the company notes it doesn't have to mine it, which brings the cost down considerably. Of course, we know there are those of you out there who think that nuclear power is simply not an option. To that, we would say that not using nuclear power is simply not an option. Speaking of nukes, some pretty exciting news uh, from Washington. Uh, the U.S. government is trying to reach some nuclear arms reductions uh, with various nations and coordinate efforts to prevent nuclear proliferation. This doesn't seem to be generating the buzz that it should. Uh, my understanding is this is the largest collection of foreign dignitaries in the United States since they founded the United Nations in 1945. We really want to applaud President Obama for his efforts in this area. Noted, noted Cynthia Tucker, writing for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and repeated in the uh, Sacramento Bee, Despite the modest changes Obama's made in U.S. nuclear policy, he's already facing a barrage of criticism from conservatives who predictably argue the president's proposals will embolden our enemies and make us weaker. In fact, Obama's policy revisions and treaty proposals are less dramatic than I would have liked since they take only small steps away from our Cold War posture. But at least they're steps in the right direction. And indeed, they are. We also want to give President Obama an attaboy for his efforts to replace the No Child Left Behind uh, system put in place by his predecessor, which was uh, a matter of uh, carrots and sticks with not too many carrots, but quite a few sticks. Noted The Economist, the NCLP law was George W. Bush's signature domestic initiative, but it is widely considered to have failed, with a third of U.S. schools still not reaching progress benchmarks. Parents and teachers alike have complained that it has forced a regime of teaching to the test, which sacrifices education to rote learning in pursuit of dubious statistics. President Obama also announced last week that he's ordering the federal government to rethink how it protects the nation's secrets. In a move that was expected to declassify more than 400 million pages of Cold War documents and curb the number of government records hidden from the public. President Obama has also reversed a decision by George W. Bush that allowed the intelligence community to block the release of a specific document, even if an interagency panel decided the information wouldn't harm national security. Of course, on the other hand, the president's announced that he's all for more offshore oil drilling. So, so why don't we quit our, quit our uh, congratulations right about now? It appears that the new areas that will be opened up uh, extend from... Um, Florida North up to uh, Delaware. This decision does end a 30-year uh, drilling embargo. Of course, if you do the math, and many people have, uh, this is not going to make America significantly more, quote, energy independent, unquote. And you know, at some point we're going to talk about this, uh, this cap-and-trade scam a lot of people are trying to promote, but not today. We'll talk about the media, specifically Newsweek magazine. The first one, do a little bit of follow-up. My census form came in the mail a couple weeks ago, and I pretty much gave him my name, rank, and serial number. We talked about the fact that uh, during World War II, it was the Census Bureau that told the authorities where they could go pick up the Japanese Americans to put them in concentration camps. So I never felt very good about listing my you know, ethnicity on the census forms. Now, to my knowledge, there is no plan afoot to round up Portuguese Americans. But, uh, you know, I really, I really, I don't feel good when I see the Associated Press item from Karl Rove urging census cooperation. Because, frankly, if Karl Rove thinks something's a good idea, even if I thought it was a good idea beforehand, I, I'm going to rethink it. 
But it's a sad story what happened in World War II. Remember my grandfather talking about going to say goodbye to a Japanese friend of his before he was taken away to one of the camps? recent article in UC Davis Magazine, the spring edition, actually notes that uh, when the government sent Japanese Americans to the camps, many in the University of California academic community objected, including UC President Robert Sproul. So even though Karl Rove thinks it's important to answer questions about race, uh, I have my doubts. Not the least of which is the fact that uh, if you're Portuguese, no one seems to know where to put you. If you're Spanish, if you're of Spanish ancestry, you can lay claim to being, quote, Hispanic, unquote, so, because some of the link countries like Uruguay and Peru to Spain because of the common language. Meanwhile, Portugal, which shares the same peninsula with Spain, is just a big question mark. And no, I, I don't really think this is nitpicking. I know of people admitted to medical school, supposedly as minorities, because, um, well, in this case, both parents were Spanish. Spanish physicians, I might add which I guess in some eyes made this person as disadvantaged as someone whose parents were Mexican farm workers. Yours truly, by the way, in spite of his olive complexion, is apparently considered as Caucasian as the Prince of Wales. And in case you're wondering, Barack Obama has opted to check the square under black when filling out his census questionnaire. According to the New York Times, he had a dozen options for race, and given his Mixed parentage, being the son of a white woman from Kansas and a black man from Kenya, he could have checked white, both black and white, or the final category, some other race, because the form contains no specific category for mixed race. Apparently, Americans have been permitted to check more than one box since the 2000 census, when about 6.8 million people reported being of two or more races. President Obama, however, bypassed that option and staked his claim squarely on his father's heritage. Let's talk about Newsweek. It used to be a pretty good magazine. About a year ago, they decided to go upscale and appeal to wealthier people and to make it a magazine more like The Atlantic or Harper's that's just you know, a bunch of essays. Except that, uh, as you may or, may or may not have noticed for the past couple of years, these essays seem to be of a very right-wing nature. In fact, I'm looking at an editorial from December by editor John Meekham, suggesting that Dick Cheney should run in 2012. Said Mr. Meekham, liberals don't spit out your lattes, but a Cheney bid would be good for the Republicans and good for the country. Of course, on my other hand, I'm holding up a, uh, an article from CNN from December of 08. Note that according to a poll, 23% of the public thought that Dick Cheney was the worst vice president ever. An additional 41% felt that Cheney was a poor vice president. Noted writer Paul Steinhauser, although extremely unpopular, Cheney will leave office as one of the most powerful vice presidents in history. He played a crucial role in many of the administration's crucial policies and was a major proponent of using and expanding executive powers. Anyway, I, I knew something was up when Newsweek's cover was What Bush Got Right in August of 08. And when I opened up that issue and saw an article titled, What Vietnam Teaches Us by Henry Kissinger, as well as an article titled, A Way Out of the Wilderness by Karl Rove, I knew something was up. Yeah, when you see articles by noted environmentalist Newt Gingrich about how we can green up the economy, boy, <laughs> you need to start wondering. And maybe you noticed the March 8th cover, which was titled, Victory at Last, The Emergence of a Democratic Iraq and it shows George Bush 
striding aboard that aircraft carrier with the mission accomplished sign behind him. Open up the magazine and it tells you the surge is working in Afghanistan. Also talks about Iraq, noting that something that looks an awful lot like democracy is beginning to take hold in Iraq. It may not be mission accomplished, but it's a state. How about the issue before that? Bunch of elephants on the cover. Headline, if the Republicans were in charge, the GOP's plan to counter Obama's agenda. And oh, hell yes, they've been out of office now 14 months. Let's hear from the Republicans and how they'd be running things. After all, they've only had, they only had eight years in a row before that to run the country into the ground. But it gets worse. That same issue has an article entitled Behind Climate Gate, which included an article by a man named Fred Gutterell, which said, Climate scientists who play fast and loose with the facts imperil not just their profession, but the planet. Do they think when they're marketing to a, a richer audience that they're marketing to a stupider audience? Apparently so. To her credit, they have an excellent science uh, writer, Sharon Begley, who commenting about this matter in an essay titled Their Own Worst Enemies, Why Scientists Are Losing the PR Wars, explains how uh, people with a lot of money are buying the best communicators out there to get their message across, while scientists are not. And they are, in fact, losing the PR wars. We want to give Sharon Begley a lot of credit. She had subsequent... Uh, Subsequent essays on this topic about how these uh, hacked emails may have compromised some scientists, but not the science that's involved. And an essay she wrote uh, titled Red Mind, Blue Mind, The Partisan Divide Over Science. We will, of course, be talking more about that in the future. The, uh, the science of, uh, of global warming is about as shaky as the science that cigarettes cause health problems. But we need to take a break. I'm Douglas Evett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more in segment three. Stay tuned. It is only a paper moon Hanging over a cardboard sea But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believe in me It is only a canvas sky Sailing over a muslin tree But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believe in me Without your love It's a honky-tonk parade Without your love It's a melody played on a penny arcade It's a Barnum and Bailey world Just as phony as it can be But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believe in me 